0: This morning's reading is Job chapter 15. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Would a wise person answer with empty notions, or fill their belly with the hot east wind? Would they argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value? But you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you have a monopoly on wisdom? What do you know that we do not know? What insights do you have that we do not have? The grey-haired and the aged are on our side. Men even older than your father. Are God consolations not enough for you? Words spoken gently to you? Why has your heart carried you away? And why do your eyes flash? So that you vent your rage against God and pour out such words from your mouth. What are mortals that they could be pure? Or those born of women that they could be righteous? If God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less mortals who are vile and corrupt, who drink up evil like water. Listen to me, and I will explain to you. Let me tell you what I have seen, what the wise have declared, hiding nothing received from their ancestors, to whom alone the land was given when no foreigners moved among them. All his days the wicked man suffers torment, the ruthless man, through all the years stored up for him. Terrifying souls fill his ears. When all seems well, marauders attack him. He despairs of escaping the realms of darkness. He is marked for the sword. He wanders about for food like a vulture. He knows the day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish fill him with terror. Trouble overwhelms him like a king, poised to attack, because he shakes his fist at God and baunts himself against the Almighty, defiantly charging against him with a thick, strong shield. This is the word of the Lord. Good
1: morning. We're continuing our journey through the book of Job. This is the study book that we're basing the series around. It's called Out of the Storm and it's by Christopher Ash. We're focusing this week on the friends' responses to Job's suffering in chapters 4 to 27. In Christopher Ash's book, the title is What Not to Say to a Suffering Believer, which is about right really. We've just heard some of it, haven't we? Next week, we're going to look at the same chapters, but focus on Job's responses. So if it feels a bit one-sided, that's why. Come back next week and you'll hear more of how Job responds. So it would be really helpful in understanding these exchanges if we could all read them ourselves. Clearly, I'm not going to cover all 23 chapters reading through. I think you'll all have left for lunch by then. So a reminder of the story so far. When we first meet Job, he's a real believer in the living God. He fears God, bowing down before him in wonder, love and awe. He turns away from evil. His day-to-day life is marked by repentance and faith. He has personal integrity. He's blameless, not sinless, but forgiven, and is upright. He has a large, harmonious family filled with godly celebrations and joy, And with material wealth, and amidst these wonderful blessings, Job maintains his godliness. He's watchful in prayer, and his highest priority is to keep himself and his family in right relationship with God. Then we switch scenes to see that in the heavenlies, Satan is given permission by God to take everything away from Job, except for his life, to test whether Job still remains faithful. He loses his children, his possessions, his good health. And yes, he holds on to his faith. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's in chapter 1. But this was not the end of the story it would be far too simple to say, he suffered, he trusted, and so should we. As in Job 3, Job curses the day of his birth and goes on lamenting and protesting for chapter after chapter. Without wanting to ruin the ending for you, in Job 42, God affirms that Job has spoken rightly of God That Job is God's servant, that Job is a righteous man who can pray and expect his prayers to be heard. The despair of Job is an authentic experience of a man affirmed by God at the start and at the end. So we bear that in mind. He is actually in the right. This is such a dark time for Job where he's feeling alone in his suffering. He's anguish and has a sense of hopelessness. And these times within the human experience, they're not wrong or sinful in themselves. The Bible is packed with God's people experiencing such feelings and we've probably all been there from time to time. God hadn't left Job and he doesn't leave us, but sometimes he can feel remote or even removed. And Ben reminded us last week that Jesus knew this and experienced it himself in Gethsemane and on the cross. But his death brings us reconciliation to God and a hope of a future with him where there is no more death, sin or sorrow. At the end of chapter 3, Job cries out, Why? And it's a question many of us have asked and continue to ask too. Sometimes with hindsight we can understand in part, sometimes we don't get answers at all. I had a friend who died from cancer at 28. She had to leave her husband, her 8-year-old son and her 18-month-old daughter. It was awful and it was an awful time. But she said to me once that people kept saying to her, Why you? But for her, she just thought, Why not me? These things happen to anyone. Very brave, I thought. In some ways, we should all expect suffering in our lifetime. We live in a broken world with imperfect people, including ourselves, and so we need to be shaped by God's word that we may be able and ready, even in the darkness, to put our hand into the hand of God. Job's friends, or his comforters, as they're ironically called, say nothing for a week, But after Job's lament in chapter 3, which we heard about last week, they have plenty to say. So let's move on to the next part. So chapters 4 to 27 are three rounds of heated arguments. They're written poetically with imagery that would be more familiar to the initial readers, unless, of course, you found that reading really easy to grasp. You may do. But for me, they're not particularly easy to read or understand, without having a commentary to hand. The arguments go back and forth like a furious game of table tennis. As a general summary, Eliphaz, who we heard from, says that Job is suffering because he has sinned, and he advises repentance. Job responds by telling him to take back his false accusation. In Job 12-14, to 14, Job says, I can't understand why this is happening to me. I haven't done anything especially wrong to deserve this. Then Bildad says that Job won't admit that he's sinned, so he's still suffering, and asks, how long will he go on like this? Job replies he'll ask God to tell him what he has against him. Then Zophar says that Job's sin deserves even more suffering than it experienced, and that again he should get rid of his sins. Job says he knows he'll be vindicated or shown to be true. And the reading we've had today is from chapter 15, the response of Eliphaz. He tells Job off for replying in rage to his friend's attempts to console him with gentle words, which Eliphaz believed come from God himself. But Eliphaz has been pretty cruel, and the other two friends have been even more malicious. There's been hardly any genuine words of comfort for Job. In verses 17 to 26 of what we heard read, Eliphaz adds to his earlier advice with traditional wisdom where a wicked man, a picture of Job, can never escape the suffering he deserves. Later, in Job 21, Job makes the point that if we look around the world, we'll notice that people who do not care about God live long, happy lives and die peacefully in their sleep, so the friend's arguments don't add up for him. Obviously, there's a lot more to that. That is a very brief summary of like 24 chapters. But there are three points to help us to get the feel of these exchanges. Firstly, the comforters are not impressed with Job. For example, in chapter 8, verse 2, Bildad is clearly riled by Job. Your words are a blustering wind, in effect. Why don't you be quiet, your old windbag? You're talking a lot of hot air. And Eliphaz says much the same in, we've just heard, chapter 15. Job's appearance had made his friends sad in chapter 2, but his words make them angry. Why? Because as the exchanges go on, repeatedly Job insists he is not being punished for some particular sin. So it seems that God is being unfair, and this makes his friends livid. In chapter 11, Zophar wishes that God would intervene and speak, as that would sort Job out and show him what empty babble is pouring out. It never crosses Zophar's mind that God might do this and may not actually say what Zophar expects him to. As the exchanges continue, Job's friends become thoroughly fed up with having to listen to him. They wish he'd be quiet and listen to them. Job is not impressed with his comforters. He's not filled with gratitude towards his friends. Job had hoped for refreshment from them, but said in chapter 16 that they were like a riverbed to which a parched traveller turns aside, only to find it as dry as dust. He calls them miserable comforters. In chapter 26, he's sarcastic with them, saying, Oh yes, you're so wise. You are where wisdom is. When you die, I'm really worried there won't be any wise people left in the world. (laughs) I love it. So for 24 chapters, Job and his friends have this blazing row. So who's right to be angry? His friends because Job accused God of being unfair? Or Job because his friends for not offering him any comfort? He says, it's enough to have God against me. Why must you too torment me and break me into pieces with words? We're told at the end of the book that it's Job that was right to be angry when the Lord says to Eliphaz, my anger burns against you and against your two friends for you have not spoken of me what is right. And so we learn that God is not impressed with Job's comforters. The anger of Job at his friends is an echo of God's anger with them. Their words are really a load of rubbish. But in a way, they're not It would be easier if they were. That's why false teaching is dangerous, because it's nearly true, but it misses the mark. So we need to look carefully at where his friends are going wrong. So Christopher Ash calls the friends' theology woeful. This is their set of beliefs. God is absolutely in control. God is absolutely just and fair. Therefore, he always punishes wickedness and blesses righteousness pretty soon and certainly in this life. Otherwise, he would be unjust, which is inconceivable. Therefore, if I suffer, I must have sinned, and I am being punished justly for my sin. And presumably, if I'm blessed, I must have been good. So, this logic undergirds all that they say. For example, the title of today that we have. Who being innocent ever perished? Implying that if the innocent did perish, the world would be unfair, and that cannot be. In chapter 5, Eliphaz says that Job has sinned, and because God loves Job, God is disciplining Job, so he should learn from his discipline. Again, not quite true. The Bible does teach that God disciplines his spiritual children, and it's a valid argument. But Job hasn't sinned. Eliphaz goes on to suggest that Job should humble himself, then God will bless him and injustice will stop. In chapter 8, Bildad says that Job's children have died because they must have sinned, then suggests that if Job repents, God may restore him. They're just relentless, aren't they, in what they're saying to him? And yet, This is not restricted to the thinking back then. A while ago, my sister had ME and was in bed for four years. She couldn't stand up long enough for the kettle to boil. One of her friends who visited her at the time said to her that her sin must be great to cause this illness. Thankfully, she had the presence of mind to dismiss this, saying, I wish I had the energy to commit the kind of sins you're talking about. (laughs) Similarly, a friend of mine's dad died when my friend was a teenager. People in his church said that he and his mum can't have had enough faith when praying for his healing. Shocking and very damaging. It's a way of people trying to put neat answers to questions, but it's absolutely untrue. And we do still hear bits of it around us, don't we? When good things happen, I must have done something good to deserve this. Even in the sound of music, she sings that. And when bad things happen, what have I done to deserve this? See, this thought theology has some truth in it. God is absolutely in control and absolutely just and fair. So the first two points are true. And there are some circumstances where our actions and our sin can result in suffering. Someone who drinks and drives may well hurt themselves and others. But suffering is not necessarily caused by sin. And we know that in Job's case, it was not. So as well as their woeful theology, the friends have a terrible tone towards Job, don't they? They're judgmental and absolutely sure that they're right. Arrogant, in fact. They have no sympathy, no empathy, no kindness or compassion. Their underlying belief is not right. They aren't just being pastorally insensitive, it's more than that. The key to this is what they don't believe. They don't acknowledge Satan. They have no awareness of this spiritual dimension and the spiritual battle that we're in. They weren't to know for sure that this was a spiritual attack, they couldn't. But they didn't even consider that as a possibility. Their world was very straightforward, like a slot machine world, with a slot machine maker who has set the rules. Put in a coin of goodness and out pops a canister of blessings. Put in a coin of badness and out clunks a parcel of poison. Also, there's no sense of waiting. For them, judgment is now. The wicked are punished now. The righteous are blessed now. But the promises of judgment are not for now there for the end. There will one day be a world ordered as it was at the creation, but we're not there yet. And they have no place for innocent suffering. They think that if the righteous were ever to suffer or perish, it would be a blot on the moral landscape. And yet, many years later, Jesus, totally innocent and sinless, died in the place of the guilty so that we might be brought back to God and live. Poor Job, as, as the saying goes, with friends like those who needs enemies. So, in the light of all that, it leads me to ask, now, how good a friend are we? I'm sure we must be better at friendship than Job's friends. But we do need to keep a check on ourselves. Making false assumptions about others is too easy. We need to avoid judgments that could be unfounded. We should be slow to give advice when people are hurting. At these times, people need compassion more than advice. It's natural for people to doubt, despair and become impatient in suffering. During these times, people need someone just to be there, to listen to them, to help them work through their feelings and frustrations, to be of practical help and to pray for them. Do we have good friends? Alongside we need to ask if we do have good friends. None of us are meant to be alone. Between us here in this room, we have our church community. We perhaps have families, neighbourhoods, work colleagues, school and uni friends and so on. But there are there particular people that we can turn to for support when we need to, who will genuinely listen to us, who give godly, wise counsel, direct us to God, who gently hold us to account, who pray for us. It's good to be mindful of who is influencing us and to choose our friends carefully. Loneliness and isolation is a huge issue in our society, even though we can sometimes be surrounded by people. We can feel unconnected and unknown. There's a relatively new book by Phil Knox called Best of Friends, and he notes that the pursuit of deep, close, intimate relationships really matter and they don't happen by accident. We need to be purposeful in initiating and investing in good, helpful relationships. And of course, there's the greatest friend of all, Jesus. In John 15, 12-15, Jesus says, This is my command, love each other as I have loved you. The greatest love a person can show is to die for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. Job says in chapter 9, He, God, is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job there points to the need for a mediator, a saviour. Like Job, we can't claim sinless lives, but because of Jesus we can claim forgiven lives. When we confess our sins to God, he forgives us and we can live with a clear conscience and a right relationship with God. And when suffering comes, and it will at various points in our lives, we can know that like Job, it may well not be the direct result of our sin, but we then need to be a bit careful not to sin as a result of suffering. Job began to wallow in self-pity From there it's easy to become self-righteous where we keep a track of all the injustices that we see against us saying, look what's happened to me, it's so unfair. We may blame God or blame others. When Job was feeling like that, he referred to God as a watcher or an observer of humanity. He was expressing his feeling that God seemed like an enemy to him, someone who mercilessly watched him squirm in his misery. We know that God does watch over everything that happens to us, but we must never forget that he sees us with compassion, not merely critical scrutiny. His eyes are full of love. He sends us the real comforter, the Holy Spirit, much better than Job's comforters. Jesus walks alongside us in everything, and he's there for us to turn to in good times and bad, in sorrow and in joy in the storm and in the calm. He is the greatest friend. Amen.